Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Jens Nelson. And I'm Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So Lucas, today is a special day. Whoa, what just happened? What did you say? That's not what we say. No, we got a little bit of a new intro, um, hoping that this will be maybe a little bit more precise, even though some of the language is similar, um, hopefully being, you know, more accurate as to what we hope to be as a podcast, who we are as um, believers, you know, me being Reformed, you being an Anglican, having that diversity, yet a a unity, um, you know, still keeping that imagery of the Emmaus Road uh, for our Christian faith. Um, and something that we do, we discuss, we investigate, we explore, we journey all these words um, through the Christian life, um, you know, each and every day. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we do on the podcast. And so we thought it kind of captured well what we do. Yeah. Um, do you also, there's another reason that this is a special day. Do you, yeah. do you know what that might be? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I have, a, I have a thought. I don't know if it's what you're thinking, but this is the, okay. not the first time I've recorded in the new apartment but it is the first time that we've acknowledged it, and it's the first Tuesday episode that we've recorded here. So if I sound a little different, um, that's why. I'm kind of in a bit of an echoey room. And also, we so we recorded the Nicholas Ridley Christians of History, and I was here, but I was in a different part of the apartment, so it was less echoey. And I've got the AC going. It's kind of a mess. We're still figuring out as, you know, we just moved here a little over a week and a half ago and we still don't have furniture and living room and everything it's a, it's it's a it's been a wild ride but um i don't know if that's what you were getting at but it is sort of the first like official inauguration of me as a birmingham alabama resident oh man and doxology so podcast co-host at the same time <laughs> <laughs> well that is also not what i had in mind today lucas is our 50th episode Whoa, I legitimately didn't even realize that. Like, I didn't even, not only did I not know that's what you were getting at, I didn't even know that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I I was, so yesterday I was I was showing one of my, my wife's um, younger brothers our podcast because he actually was asking about you. I don't know if I've like mentioned you or how how you've come up, but mm-hmm. he's like, hey, what's what's Lucas? Like, what does Lucas do? <laughs> And I, I, I sort of like explained, right? <laughs> what is Lucas? Um, it's like the it's like the catechism question. What is God? Um, but yeah, he, I was like, well, we same. we do a podcast. Well, right, right. <laughs> but worded the same. Yes. Uh, but yeah, he he asked like you know what our podcast was. So like I just played him a couple snippets, and he's mm-hmm. like, it's hard to tell the difference between your voices. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, now I'm wondering if like other people have that same thought. Um, but like, as I went there and looked, you know, as at all episodes, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Nicholas Ridley was episode 49, which makes this wow. one episode 50. So I, I think I read somewhere that most podcasts on average don't go over 10. Um, you know, that's taking into consideration the ones that continue to like hundreds and then some that get like one episode, wow. but like the average episode is, or the average podcast will only have about 10 episodes. So apparently we're five average podcasts. That's old. <laughs> amazing. That makes sense. I would expect nothing less from us. I'm right. Kidding. Exactly. It's been but it's been a lot of fun. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's super yeah. cool. I we're still cruising. We're still cruising. I hope that people who listen are enjoying it. You know, and if not, 
I'm enjoying it, so I don't see any yeah. reason to stop anytime soon. <laughs> no, I mean, even with the busyness of life and COVID yep. and moving to Alabama, like we'll keep on rolling down this road that is the Christian life. Oh, yeah. And I guess maybe to jump on into today's episode five minutes later, um, today we're, we're, we're actually, is another special day, you know, for the 50th reason here, but um, we're, we're actually doing an episode that was recommended by a listener. Um, and that listener happens to be related to me. Um, this is this is a shout out to my aunt Amy who um, threw the idea to us, and I was like, "That's a great idea. We'll throw it, you know, up in the queue." Since you and I at the time didn't really have any ideas for what would come next, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's God's shout timing. out to Amy. We're uh, <laughs> God's timing. We're yeah, we're recording this on Sunday, the twenty third of August. It's gonna drop in a couple days, um, so. Where uh, the episode, as you've already read, is something like the fundamentals, the fundamentalist papers, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, Lucas, do you kind of want to give us a, an intro to our topic today? Sure. So, the the fundamentals is a collection of essays that was published between 1910 and 1915. That's sort of the the base, you know, explanation of what the fundamentals are um these essays were about well not just about they were arguing for a we could say conservative traditional um expression of christian faith and doctrine um but it didn't just come out of nowhere and that's really important to keep in mind for you know the historical context of what these essays are doing and why they were created. And then also it's important to keep that in mind as we talk about sort of their legacy and what came later in American Protestant evangelical Christian history. So like I said, they were published at night between 1910 and 1915. So going back a couple decades, right around the turn of the 20th century, um, Christianity in America was at something of a crossroads Following various technological, scientific, philosophical, you know, development, progress, changes that had been really rapidly taking place since the Enlightenment in the 1700s and philosophy and, you know, the Industrial Revolution in the mid to late 1800s, really completely reshaping the way that factories work, that transportation happens you know, telegrams and telegraphs changing the way communication happens. Things like Darwin's Origin of Species being published, I think, in the 1860s, if I'm correct, um, changing the way that the scientific community looked at the origins of natural life and the development of natural life. Um, There were a lot of changes going on in a lot of different fields of knowledge. And um, that resulted in, you know, a lot of questions being raised amongst and to Christians that didn't necessarily get asked, you know, in the middle of the dark ages in the 900s in France or something like that. So specifically what I'm talking about is certain, you know, classical doctrines of the Christian faith, or at least classical um, expressions and ways of describing those doctrines. So things like miracles and like the supernatural Um, the virgin birth, the trinity, these things that sort of transcend our human understanding, that they they don't necessarily on the surface seem like they match with the philosophy and the science of the day. 
um, they started to get sort of questioned from a rationalistic perspective. And like I said, these were questions that, you know, were probably coming from inside the church as much as outside the church. Um, but the result was that a lot of Christians were kind of adapting the faith to the changing times. And they were either reinterpreting or reshaping certain aspects of their theology to fit into new ways of thinking. So a really good example of this, you know, to, to harken back to, you know, Charles Darwin publishes Origin of Species, his theory of natural selection and evolution takes, you know, gets pop more and more popular in the scientific community. Um, suddenly, a 6,000-year-old Earth, where God took six 24-hour days to create all the species according to their kinds, exactly as we see them, and place them in their habitats, those two things those two ways of explaining the source of the natural world seem to be completely at odds and completely contradict, contradict each other. And it, you know, at the, at the time and, and oftentimes still today, like it, it kind of feels like you have to pick one or the other. You can be a Christian and you have to kind of reject the scientific consensus about naturalistic evolution, or you can accept the scientific consensus and kind of reject the Christian faith. And obviously, you know, we did an episode on creation that I think highlights at least some of the ways that that's not, that that's kind of an overly simplistic way of looking at the issue, but it's a good example of the kinds of issues and questions that were coming up in this time. And when Christians came and adapted their, their theology to the new developments in science and philosophy, what we got was, um, something with when we're talking within Christianity within theology liberalism and modernism so these are you know specifically in this setting I'm not saying liberal as in democrat or liberal as in um, personal freedoms I'm not saying modern as in you know a certain philosophy or or you know post 1750 or whatever like these are more specific terms in the context of theology but um modernist theology at the sh at the turn of the 20th century sort of was a reinterpreting and a reshaping of theology to fit the new philosophies and, and scientific discoveries of the day in a way that made sense in a rational a rationalistic perspective then that's really key sort of the the reliance on human reason and saying oh based on these new developments in philosophy, the Trinity doesn't make sense anymore. So I'm going to re-explain what the Trinity is using my, my reason and my reason alone to rationalistically make these things fit together. You know, which I, that looked a lot of different ways to a lot of different people, but hopefully it's kind of making sense what's going on. Um, on the flip side you had other Christians who were still committed to classical expressions of doctrine who are responding to this modernist trend by um, pushing back. And the fundamentals was one of the first and most significant um, sort of published writing projects on a large scale that was designed and intended to push back against the modernist trend in theology. Um, and they all, you know, sort of the vision for this started with a man named Lyman Stewart, who was a successful owner of an oil company out in California, I believe. Um, and he became really concerned with the rise of modernist theology. He was a devout 
um, a Presbyterian layman. He, uh, you know, I, I think I read he worked super hard and like ended up having like a nervous breakdown or something. Um, so he like took a sabbatical and went to this um, like retreat center, I think actually at Moody's, uh, a conference out in Massachusetts at Northampton, I think. Um, but while he was there, he kind of had this like big picture sort of vision of a project of theological writings that could be um, published and printed on a large scale and then mailed out to people, clergy, churches across the country for free, basically to promote classical conservative Christian doctrine against the new modern liberal Christian doctrine. He ended up kind of crazy. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned that it was free. Mm -hmm. Um, And and what you have to kind of imagine too, is like, this is in a time, obviously pre-internet, right? (laughs) um, You know, pre, you know, mass communication. So like to, to think of a project of that scale, to make something that would be distributed at no cost, not just in our country, but also around the world. I mean, I, I think I read that like a third of all the publications went to, um, international. Wow, yeah. Um, so it's just kind of crazy to think that like, you know, his, his goal was like, yeah, like we want to get this into the hands of, you know, everybody, Every, everybody that we can. Yeah. And we're just going to, yeah. we're going to mail it out for free. Like, but it's just a crate. When you think about when this happened, it's a pretty crazy undertaking. It, yeah, it's definitely ambitious. And I think it reflects sort of the, the, uh, really big picture sort of vision that he was having, um, which is pretty cool, you know, for what it's worth. I think it's, 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 it, you know, I mean, he's the owner of a successful oil company. I have to imagine he's kind of used to like dreaming big and to a certain extent, you know, I don't really know, but it just seems like that would be kind of necessary to succeed in that industry again, especially in that time. <laughs> um, but he eventually gained the support of a, I believe fairly popular, successful, well-known Baptist pastor named AC Dixon, who he kind of pitched the idea to. And then Dixon was like, yes, we're going to do this. This is great. And then they kind of started working together to round up um, and recruit other writers. And they ended up eventually, like if you look at the list of all the authors who eventually contributed, um, the fundamentals ended up being like 90, I think, essays long. And there were dozens of authors pastors, professors, theologians, um, you know, notably for Moody grads like you and me, a couple of names that stick out are um, R.A. Torrey, who eventually would be mm-hmm. one of the editors of the project, as well as James Gray. Um, both of those at both of those people were at one point presidents of Moody Bible Institute, um, the Torrey Gray Auditorium at Moody's Chicago campus is, is named after Torrey and Gray, obviously. <laughs> um, R.A. Torrey also uh, would be go on to be, a, I believe, a founding uh, member of the faculty or maybe the first dean of uh, Biola out in L.A. Hmm. Um, after his tenure at, at Moody. Um, so one of the authors that I was sort of surprised, uh-huh. I, I didn't I didn't know most of the authors. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I sort of perused the the list of people that contributed. The only one that I really recognized other than our Moody people um, was B.B. Warfield. Yep. So I think it's Benjamin, I think it's Breckenridge. Ridge, uh, or, yeah, what whatever. B.B. Warfield. Wasn't his dad. Um, oh, no, I'm thinking of Hodge. The Hodge people, it was like A.C. Hodge and then like C.C. Hodge or something. I don't remember. Yeah, there was, <laughs> yeah it got really confusing. Everybody goes by their initials back in the day. I'm J.N. Nelson from now on, okay? Um, so 
but anyway, yeah, B.B. Warfield, which which is a really interesting one, but I think it kind of goes to show some of the diversity, like we've said, that went into, you know, of all the denominations that are represented in the That's, writing yeah. of these fundamental papers. That is a big a big thing. Just Just on a, you know, they're united in their desire to promote classical Christian doctrine over and against modernist Christian doctrine, as they understood it. Um, but this was not an issue at the time of certain denominations versus others, you know? James right. Gray was a Reformed Episcopal priest. R.A. Torrey was, I don't know, <laughs> but I believe he was involved in, in um, the Pentecostal movement, I think, at some point. I'm not sure, but, you know, A.C. Dixon was a Baptist pastor. Lyman Stewart, uh, the, the sort of you know, mastermind of the whole thing, like I mentioned, was a Presbyterian layman. We had college professors. We had uh, p- local pastors who were writing. Like, it was a very, very broad group of people um, that came from very various backgrounds and different um, traditions, And but they were united in this one goal that they were sharing. Um, and I think that is a very important thing to, to note. Um, and I think we could learn something from it today. Um, I think we're much quicker to, to bicker and, and call each other names, um, even within our own traditions, let alone across traditions like Baptists, Presbyterians, Reformed Episcopal, Pentecostals. Like, I can't imagine too many examples of something like this happening today when I look at Christian Twitter, you know? And that's probably the lowest of the low to, like, look at as my, my basis is, is, is you know— Twitter fights, but I do think it's just, it's, it's, a, it's kind of, even if it is like at the bottom of the barrel, it is a snapshot of the way that we interact with each other. Um, and, you know, we've got more thoughts of that on our, in our Christian love episode. So I'll, I'll leave that there. But <laughs> um, uh, Lyman Stewart ended up, you know, he, he sort of bankrolled the whole thing um, and put up all the money for it. And then, um, the theologians and the pastors and the professors who were writing um, all of the different essays kind of they, they formed there was a committee and there was an editorial team and they sort of like shaped the more specific vision for like what the project would actually end up looking like in terms of hmm. the topics and, and you know the publication and whatnot. Um, they got uh, like a group together that to to pray even before they were actually like in the process of writing and publishing the essays that they, they got a huge group. And I mean, thousands of people, I think, I think I read it was like three or 5,000 people at, at one point were, were just on like the, the prayer team praying over the writing and the publication wow. and the distribution of the, the project. And, um, uh, it's, you know, kind of exciting. Uh, I believe it was 808 North LaSalle Boulevard in Chicago, which, uh, at the time, I think was was connected to or, or so, somehow attached to Moody Church. Um, uh, was they rented a space there and um, another little fun nugget for us Moody grads. I mean, 808. I think things have moved a little bit since you know in the century since this time. But I mean, that's like spitting distance from the arch. You know, like right uh, the, the the front entrance to the school. So that's kind of fun to see. Um, and so they they start they sort of the the umbrella that they started to publish it was called the Testimony Publishing Company, um, and then they got to work and they 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 published and, distri- and distributed the essays. Um, like I said in the beginning, it, over you know the whole project lasted from 1910 to 1915 of actual publication. 
um, the response was huge. <laughs> um, it, I, I don't, I don't know enough about American history or, or even world history to necessarily say this like for sure, but I have to imagine that there probably wasn't very many, if any projects quite like this in terms of the scale before this and where people all across the country, thousands of people are sending in letters, um, you know, talking about their appreciation or, or, you know, wanting maybe more copies or, you know, like the, the response was just, was just massive. Um, and we, you can, you can still read the fundamentals. They're still, um, I believe they are still in print, or at least you should be able to find uh, printed physical editions. Um, later on, R.A. Tory ended up publishing like a four volume set. I don't think that's still in print, but I think you could probably find it online. I don't know how expensive it would be. Um, I believe I read that Eerdmans printed or published I it was Baker, but it, Baker, it's one I of think, those. I think it's Baker published like a two volume set in like 2001 or 2003 or something. So I'm sure those are a lot easier to find as well. And you can also actually find, I believe all of the essays online. Um, just on, I mean, they were free when they were first published. Why aren't they free <laughs> now? <laughs> um, so yeah. So that's sort of an overview of what the fundamentals are and a little bit about their history and their publication. You know, I think I mentioned this at the beginning too. There's like 90 essays. It's, it's a lot of content. Um, we, we definitely didn't sit down and read through all of them to... We wouldn't have any to pr- time to, to do prepare anything else if we did. <laughs> for, uh, for this one. But um, I think that it's, it's a really interesting bit of American religious history. And, and yeah. maybe I'm a little biased because there's so many ties to Moody um, and whatnot, but maybe that just makes it more interesting to me. But I think it's a super <laughs> interesting um, thing. And what's, what's also interesting is to kind of consider, you know, the legacy, maybe the legacy of the, the fundamentals or maybe the perceived legacy of the fundamentals maybe we can kind of get into what I mean by that like like yeah. now but I mean you hear the fundamentals and I think a lot of us even if we're not familiar with that particular you know publication from 1910 we we're probably familiar with the term fundamentalism right and I think that might be a term that a lot of people listening maybe don't have the fondest associations or connotations with and I would say right. maybe rightly so. <laughs> um, well, I think, but I want to kind of explore like like what is the relationship between, if any, between the fundamentals, the essays, and fundamentalism more broadly speaking. So I think it's helpful to to say on the front end that it's possible that the name, the fundamentals, you know, what we're calling these ninety essays and papers, I think that might be a little bit of a misnomer, um, maybe not originally. But perhaps, like, were, were these to be published today, I think it would, you know, fall under another name. Um, you know, when I think of what the fundamentals were setting out to do, you know, it was it was to lay bare, like, these are the foundational, fundamental beliefs and core doctrines that the Christian faith holds to. Um, you know, I, that maybe that's overly simplistic, but that's more or less what they were trying to do. Um, so, you know, you could, you could consider the fact that, you know, John Calvin wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion um, on, you know, 
on one hand, that's it's a very similar endeavor to sort of lay out, you know, the institutes, the fundamentals, the core beliefs, the foundational principles, whatever you want to call it. In a way, you're just in in your context. Um, on the one hand, again, guarding against heresy, guarding against uh, bad doctrine, bad theology. And on the other hand, like promoting good, healthy, sound, orthodox beliefs. Um, and granted, maybe you don't fall into some of these denominational categories for the people that were writing. You know, maybe you're not Presbyterian, maybe you're not Anglican, maybe you're not Reformed, you know. Um, but I think that's it. it, it what kind of like interests me, <laughs> again, the fact that like B.B. Warfield and then like Gray and Tory, um, I wouldn't think that those are all people that would be, you know, hanging out all that often. And maybe maybe they didn't. But the fact that they contributed together, having probably a diverse theological background, but also like being diverse on the theological spectrum, still being able to like, for the sake of unity and defending bad teaching, like they were able to produce this monumental work. Um, and so the reason that I say this might be a little bit of a misnomer is because like fundamentalism as a, I don't know, a, a worldview isn't necessarily movement. the right word, but like as a movement, as a entity, um, an enterprise, whatever you want to call it, like is they're, they're not related. So if, if you ever saw like the fundamentals and thought like, Ooh, I bet that's like a precursor to modern day fundamentalism. Um, you might be slightly wrong. Um, though, I think in a way these things do have a little bit of overlap and what I find yeah. fascinating and like, I'm no, I'm no like historian. Um, but I, I think it's fascinating when someone can evaluate large chunks of, of human history and like distill that information and, and sort of like trace movements, like how we get from, right. you know, 1700s enlightenment to like our modern period. Like what are some of like the big things that led to those movements and what, what what's even even more fun to think about is like what are those modern movements now that we don't even recognize what are the things happening in 2020 that are going to lead to these dramatic shifts and changes you know 20 30 100 years from now um you know I, sometimes i think we forget that like the moment we're living in is the now but it's it's gonna be the past very soon and people are going to evaluate history um so, yeah, I don't, were you wanting to say something to add there? No, I just think it's a little, like, obviously it's related, but not not quite exactly in line with what you're saying. But, like, to, you, like you kind of mentioned, it, it's not really accurate to draw a straight line from the fundamentals to modern day, like, independent, fundamental Baptist kind of, you know, separatist, you know, uh, I don't know if that's the right separatist, but like, like separationist, no, that's a, that's a maybe, I, you know, I don't know yeah. what, what term they use, but, um, you know, really marking and dividing, you know, very like revivalistic. The wheat type. from the chaff. Yeah. Um, like <laughs> it's, it's, it's not true to say there's no connection, but it's also not true to say, you know, this leads to that kind of thing. And I think a, right. one of the big challenges that we face is the way that vocabulary shifts and changes because fundamentalism quote unquote like that word used to have a different meaning it used to be used differently i should say than it is today so um a perfect example of this this is 
in between, you know, our era and the era of the actual fundamentals themselves. But um, Carl F.H. Henry, who I believe was the first editor of Christianity Today. I don't know if he was the first, but he was for a long time um, editor-in-chief or whatever of Christianity Today. He wrote a book that I would highly recommend to everybody to read called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And he wrote this in the late 1940s, I believe. Um, what he's talking about, if he was writing today, he would say the uneasy conscience of modern evangelicalism. At the time, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, you had modernists and fundamentalists. And fundamentalists, that side of American Protestant Christianity, would go on to more or less become what we know today as evangelicals. And that shift, I think, really came about in the 50s with like Billy Graham and sort of that era and on um, of, of that moniker of evangelical um, as opposed to fundamentalist. And the people who would go on to sort of break off of that side of the family tree and be, you know, what we know of today as fundamentalists are the ones who kind of held on to that, um, that, uh, that title of fundamentalist um, because of their, you know, like the the idea that that I or my nomination or my church is is standing firm on the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. You know, it's it's a good title. You know, if that's what you're trying to do, like it makes sense. <laughs> if if you're concerned with the fundamentals, then you are a fundamentalist. You know, in the lexical sense, like what the word actually is trying to say. Today, that it just it means something a little different because there are people who are concerned with the core truths of the Christian faith who are not fundamentalists in terms of their right. attitude and, and some of the right, specific right. distinctive beliefs that have kind of been lumped in with fundamental core Christian truths within the fundamentalist movement, more broadly speaking. So I think that's also mm. something to keep in mind, and it kind of helps highlight how it's not a straight line where— right. The people who are writing um, the fundamentals really, in a lot of ways, if we were going to, it would be anachronistic to do this, but we can kind of look at them as like, almost like proto-evangelicals. So like fundamentalism originally is, is what becomes evangelicalism. And I think that's really important to keep in mind that like the way we use words changes and I think that it's almost, not that they would have known this, but it's almost unfortunate that they chose the term the fundamentals instead of like the core truths or something, right. because it's gone <laughs> on to be associated with something very different than what they were representing. And I think yep. if you don't believe that, we just need to look at the fact that we had Presbyterians, Anglicans, uh, Baptists, Pentecostals, reformed. all you know, reformed people, all writing in... And con I mean, contributing essays <laughs> to this project, which, you know, maybe this is being uncharitable, but I just don't think that would ever happen in current contemporary fundamentalist circles. I mean, I, there are fundamentalist churches who think other fundamentalist churches are too liberal, so I don't think they're going to be working <laughs> with Presbyterians anytime soon. <laughs> um, well, especially if they're not using the King James Bible. <laughs> uh, we're not going to associate at all if they're not, so... Um, and I, so like I said, it's a little, it, you know, I think that's worth noting. And I, th I think it's, yeah. it's value. It's a valuable piece of like a reminder to kind of be like, 
it's it's not as easy as the fundamentals fundamentalists but it's also not there's no it's not that there's no connection because remember fundamentalism as we know it comes from evangelicalism you know right it, well maybe it's helpful to like explain these yeah. connections so um, we're going to link to a really helpful article that I read sort of like in preparation to this. So Justin Taylor, um, who I think he works for Crossway, he writes for Gospel Coalition, um, but he, he wrote um, the four phases of Protestant fundamentalism in America, where he outlines um, step by step sort of how we, and it's not just about the fundamentals, it's about fundamentalism, right. but he obviously right. mentions the fundamentals in that. Um, and so I'll just sort of list the four and give a brief description of them and if you want to read the article yourself you know like i guess that's a little bit longer so that way you can get a, a better idea of what we're talking about here um, but he says that there's an irenic which is um, a word that means peace it comes from the greek word that just means peace so the irenic phase which was from about 1839 or sorry 1893 to 1919 and this was a prelude to fundamentalism proper and so you know again if you read the article he'll go into detail on, on what he means there um, but but like Lucas said sort of in the beginning, this phase really, um, it's just like, it's a, like, like you're saying, like there's this peace between um, denominations, there's this unity coming together to write the fundamentals. Right. Um, they're just really trying to combat some of the like issues that they saw. Um, and then from this phase, we get a militant phase uh, from about 1920 to 1936, and this is encompassing the fundamentalist modernist controversies. Um, so some of the things that begin to um, grow, you know, you think about what's going on in here. We have Great Depression, World War II is sort of, you know, in swing. Um, you know, theologically, what what's sort of coming out of, as Lucas already alluded to, you know, um, the Enlightenment and the 1800s and uh, progression in science and industrial revolution. Um, so there, there were sort of these controversies that began, you know, sprouting up. And from, from this phase, you get a divisive phase. So this is when fundamentalism, as you said, Lucas, divisive. split into evangelical and separatist. Um, so there were, there were these two factions almost um, where, you know, this, this divisive, divisive uh, <laughs> uh, phase happens. And right. um, this is really where a split happened. So 1941, 1960, mm. and it led to a separatist phase, which is 1960 to present. Mm. And this is where the self-designation of fundamentalism is restricted to Protestants who remove themselves from mainstream uh, American culture and religion. So again, we keep mentioning like independent fundamental Baptists, right. and they're people who, you know, pride themselves on, on being that. They are separatist they remove themselves from all things culture all things um you know mainstream quote-unquote religion um they like to talk about that that old time religion the old paths um that the, saw, the men of old used to take i saw a hilarious tweet it was like it's it was like put in quotes old old time religion or something like that and then it had a gif of like some or orthodox patriarch like sensing the altar with incense and like <laughs> in like all the you know big hat and all these like gold right. vestments and stuff and i just thought i just thought that was amazing <laughs> no old time religions man in a tie with his king james bible um so yeah you that, that's sort of like a very like overarching you know thirty thousand foot view of these phases of fundamentalism yeah. Um, and, and Justin Taylor writes that within Protestant circles, the debate over who is a fundamentalist and who is not continues to rage. 
for example, are self-styled evangelicals. So like those associated with Christianity Today, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or Wheaton College, are they deserving of the label fundamentalist? Or does that moniker apply, um, or moniker, sorry, uh, apply only to the most conservative of Protestant in institutions with strict moral codes and commitments to ecclesiastical separation, such as Bob Jones University? So those attempting to penetrate the dense forest of such 20th century religious terminology are bound to encounter a few thorns along the way. So that was like from his introduction mm. talking about like, really how like do we that. even define, yeah. how do we define who fundamental fundamentalists are? Because, um, you know, depending on where you fall on, you know, whether it's the political spectrum or the theological spectrum, you might have ideas of what fundamentalism means, um, you know, what kind of people that they are. And so how do we categorize what we mean? Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're at all familiar with a place like Wheaton versus Bob Jones, um, you're going to like definitely understand the difference right. between those two types of schools. Um, and, and even, you know, they're going to have even a place like Moody, right. you know, which was people who led Moody were editing the fundamentals. Like it wasn't just a loose association. Like we, you know, it's right. very intimately tied with the history of Moody Bible Institute, but even a place like Moody, especially today, is just a different kind of place, you know, as conservative and sort of like uh, old school, you know, quote unquote, you know, early 1900s fundamentalist as they are in some ways with regards to their, you know, doctrinal standards or, you know, some policies that they still have or used to have for student life and stuff like that. It's not the same thing as somewhere like a Bob Jones, just in terms of the entire outlook and experience of, of the student and the faculty and, you know, what they're all about. Like, it's, it's, it's really, like you're saying, like, Wheaton's an even better example, but even a place like Moody is not on the same level as a right. place like Bob Jones. Bob um, Jones, it, right. it is really interesting to think about that. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe this deserves like an entire other conversation like another episode about like fundamentalism proper to sort of talk about you know who are the modern fundamentalists um, but like if you want like a picture of what modern day fundamentalists are as opposed to what you know again trying to understand that the fundamentals and fundamentalism <laughs> trying to say that the fundamentals and fundamentalism don't go hand in hand mm -hmm. um, to sort of show you why that's true even though they might have some correlation and relation. Um, Justin Taylor says that um, the separation for fourth phase separatist fundamentalism goes hand in hand with the movement's interpretation of personal holiness. Holiness implies a complete separation from evil, which for fundamentalists includes worldly amusements such as card playing, dancing, you know, going to a movie, drinking. So the only way to maintain a pure biblical quote-unquote biblical church is to remain separate from anything that might corrupt it even if this demands separation from a fellow christian who does not adhere to such stringent guidelines um you know so when you think about that definition of you know these fourth-phased separatist fundamentalists um, which is a mouthful to say my goodness um you know you might you might think of you know people like even john MacArthur. i think in a way falls into modern fundamentalism even though i wouldn't call him a you know independent fundamental baptist that's sure. its own right yeah. segment Definitely. within Definitely. fundamentalism um but you know even like yesterday or today or whatever john john MacArthur was on some radio program where he basically said any real true believer is going to vote for trump in the next election because like 
if if they if they're not going to, then they're not a true believer. Like there's no way that a true believing Christian can actually stand um, on any of the other platforms or you know endorse any of the other candidates because it's just not what a Christian would do. And so there's been a lot of like talk on social media about like how John MacArthur is sort of forsaking sola fide, you know, it's faith alone that makes us a Christian. He's sort of like saying that, you know, to be a true Christian, you have to vote this certain way. Yeah, um, and I think that's a really good and, example. If I, sorry, to, to I don't mean to cut you no, off, you're good. but like whether or not, you know, John MacArthur really fits within the, you know, specific category of, you know, fundamentalism proper or whatever, or what, and whether or not you want to, I think there's legitimate room to argue like Christians, Christ, Christians shouldn't be voting this way or that way because of this reason or this policy or this, you know, th- th- those are all important conversations to be had, but they're different. But I think that to get up there and to say all true Christians will or must do X or Y is a good example of a fundamentalist attitude right in terms of approaching these kinds of things where you're gonna say i'm going to draw the lines in the sand that ultimately are not lines being drawn by the by by scripture they're not being drawn by church tradition at all like they're 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 totally just you know me and my bible type theology of i'm drawing these lines he might have a lot of reasons and some of them might be really good for him to conclude that for his conscience, he needs to vote, you know, for this party or this candidate. And maybe he's right that this party or this candidate is the most, you know, um, like the best option based on Christian values. But to get up in public and to say all Christians who are really Christian must vote this way or must do that thing, like, we're not we're not in a place where we can judge someone's heart. <laughs> right. We, we don't get to decide who's a true Christian. You know, we, we can point to things and say, this, this suggests an, an issue of sin or a mistake or, you know, fine. But that's not the sort of the attitude of these kinds of declarations. And I think that that is sort of a reflection of, of an attitude that leans toward fundamentalism. Even if you, even if you're not comfortable putting, John MacArthur, in this case, specifically in the fundamentalist category. Um, I think you can still look at that and kind of recognize what we're talking about in terms of these very hard line, separatist minded type way of interacting with other Christians and the world. Right. Yeah. And I think it's it's ironic when I read this and I, th- I think of, you know, that where, it, where he says worldly amusements, such as card playing, dancing, attending the movies, drinking. Like I understand like in human history and church history, there have been different things that have been, you know, things that you should refrain from for certain reasons. Um, and it's funny because Moody was a place where a lot of those things for a long time weren't so, allowed yeah, too. I mean, there was a strict like dress code, no movies, <laughs> right? No card playing, no dancing, like all the things on here. Are like, yeah. well, if you were a Moody student in like the seventies and eighties, you weren't doing those things. At least you shouldn't have been. <laughs> um, but like, it's interesting because another thing I think that helps define some, if not a lot of fundamentalists is legalism. Like a lot of what they do teach, mm-hmm. a lot of what they would hold to 
is legalistic because it isn't like scripture does not outright forbid card playing it does not forbid dancing or going to the movies or even drinking <laughs> exactly but like and you know if we go you know we like to poke fun at the independent fundamental baptists but like it's because they just have such like outrageous right beliefs yeah. sometimes that like it's it's just it's low-hanging fruit i understand but you know when they say that you have to you know you can't wear shorts even at the beach um you know they right. they have all these like really weird reasons for why that's true you can't even necessarily give scriptural evidence to back that up um you know so this this legalistic mindset um can be problematic and i I remember even going to moody and people saying that you know moody is so legalistic because we're not allowed to drink and we can't smoke like we have to sign the student life agreement and you're gonna abide by all the rules like i you know i i get it like it's a christian university that wants to maintain a certain rule of conduct and they can't say that because the Bible says this, you have to obey it because I don't think the Bible does say you can't right. drink. I think it actually they, says the opposite. And they wouldn't say that either, which is, right. I think, no. even another difference at Moody that we can point to, at, right. at least exactly. in modern day. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, at this point, maybe it's helpful to just kind of wrap up um, because that there's a lot that can be said. There's a lot that goes into this conversation because even as Justin Taylor says in the in the article, you know, it's it's a confusing movement to to define it's a little mm. difficult to, to pinpoint exactly what we're speaking of here but when when this topic was brought up of the fundamental you know fundamentals papers you know i think i didn't really know what to expect i didn't really know what mm-hmm. direction to take this um, because honestly i didn't know a whole lot about them i don't really remember learning about them at moody if we did maybe i was not paying attention that day or i don't i don't think we <laughs> who, did. who knows um but i, I do want to like, add in um a book that I think is well worth reading, especially if you have any ties to Moody Bible Institute yourself, but Guaranteed Pure by Timothy Glog, Glog, Glieg. I'm not sure how to say his last name. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's like G-L-O-E-G-E or something. Um, but yeah. it, is, it is a very well done history of, of Moody Bible Institute from, from, you know, Moody's early life in ministry into the founding and, and, you know, the tenures of people like Tory and Gray, and, and it, it, it talks a lot about the fundamentals, which is where I was exposed to it, which this was in a Moody class, actually, during my year at the seminary okay. there. But I would highly recommend that book, Guaranteed Pure, um, for a for a, a little bit of a deeper dive into into Moody specifically. But but because of that, there is a lot of talk about the the fundamentals um, and and their their production and, and all that hmm. as well. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll just say in closing, you know, I, I like the idea of what the fundamentals as papers as what they set out to do. Even if I don't agree with every piece that they produce, like even if I wouldn't, you know, be a dispensational premillennialist, even if I wouldn't, you know, I don't know what else is in there because I didn't read all of them. But, you know, <laughs> even if I wouldn't affirm some of it, like I, I like that idea. And as you sort of alluded to, I don't know that we'd be able to do the same sort of thing today. I think there'd be too much division to be able to come to like a, a unified, you know, mm. publication, so to speak. And so I, I think that's something that would be, you know, cool to do today, even to do some sort of, obviously don't call it fundamentals, whoever's going to produce it, but like <laughs> produce something, you know, truths we confess, what we believe, you know, call it like, I don't know, Apostles Creed 2.0. Maybe that's a little like, a little too uh, <laughs> iffy, but you know, you know what I mean? Like Not, just something yeah. that outlines, exactly. you know, the doctrines of, of the church and what it believes. Cause there's always going to be problems that we have to combat. There's always going to be, you know, issues that come to the forefront of, you know, the theological 
mind. And so yeah. it's helpful to have these things in a modern, you know, modern translation with modern language and expl- addressing the modern issues. So I like what the fundamentals set out to do. Um, I sometimes have problems with a lot of fundamentalism. Um, I don't consider myself a fundamentalist when it comes to how we understand that word today. Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any closing thoughts? Or are you? No. Are we good to wrap it up? Yeah. I think. All right. You're gonna pray us out. Yep, I'll pray it out, and then you can take her take her home. So this is the seventh day um, morning prayer called God's Good Pleasure in the Valley of Vision. So, Sovereign Lord, thy will is supreme in heaven and earth, and all beings are creatures of thy power. Thou art the father of our spirits. Thy inspiration gives us understanding, and thy providence governs our lives. But, God, we are sinners in thy sight. Thou hast judged us, um, and if we deny it, we make thee a liar. Yet in Christ thou art reconciled to thy rebellious subjects. Give us the ear of faith to hear him, the eye of faith to see him, the hand of faith to receive him, the appetite of faith to feed upon him, that we might find in him light, riches, honor, eternal life. Thou art the inviting one. May we hearken to thee. The almighty instructor, teach us to live to thee. The light dweller, inaccessible to man and angels, hiding thyself behind the elements of creation, but known to us in Jesus. Possess our minds with the grandeur of thy perfections. Thy love to us in Jesus is firm and changeless. Nothing can separate us from it. And in the enjoyment of it, nothing can make us miserable. Preserve us from hypocrisy and formality in religion. Enable us to remember what thou art and what we are, to recall thy holiness and our unworthiness. Help us to approach thee clothed with humility, for vanity, forwardness, insensibility, disorderly affection, backwardness to duty, uh, proneness to evil are in our hearts. Let us never forget thy patience wisdom, power, faithfulness, care, and never cease to respond to thy invitations. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast. Shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com for any feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Um, You can sign up for the newsletter, get a weekly update on upcoming episodes and any news or developments. Check out logos.com slash doxology podcast to hear from our sponsor, the amazing Logos Bible Software. And until next time, we will see you later.